0: Hey everyone, and welcome to The Wheelchair Activist with me, Emma Vogelman. Like any self-respecting millennial, I've had so many moments where I've thought, hey, I should start a podcast, so here we are. The Wheelchair Activist podcast will interview the incredible unsung heroes of the disabled community and show them succeeding in all different areas of life so that people know that anything is possible. I will also be covering my life as a disabled person with all of the highs, lows, and in-betweens. Today, I am joined by the amazing Elizabeth Ford, who is an Accessibility Specialist at Scope. She's a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, and I'm so excited to dive into this episode.
1: People kind of pitied you, you know, you were being told you were brave for kind of just living your life. I have to say that, you know, I'm proud of my impairment. I've accepted who I am. I remember the first day I was in the Scope office and I walked into the office and there were, I don't know, maybe five or six other disabled people in the office that day. And that really isn't that many, but for me it was five or six more people than I'd ever worked with. The more people that become aware of it the more and more likely it is that those barriers won't be in place.
0: Hey everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode of The Wheelchair Activist with me Emma Vogelman and this week we are joined by an extremely special guest a friend of mine and a colleague of mine at Scope and before I introduce her just that I can't think of a better person to be on this episode because at The Wheelchair Activist, I completely reject the idea that armchair activism, for those of you who don't know, armchair activism is this idea that you can only be an activist when you're physically lobbying, physically going and campaigning and protesting, but for us disabled people, so many times our options are limited to the way that we can go and make our activism known and change change the world in our own way and I can't think of a better person to have on for our first episode who perfectly embodies that than Elizabeth Ward. Elizabeth thank you so so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much for having me excited to be here.
0: So Elizabeth can you tell us a little bit about what you do I call you my accessibility guru my content accessibility queen but can you talk us through a little bit about what you do and your career history I know I said right now you work at scope but you've previously worked for the digital content team at parliament is that right
1: yeah, so I actually started in content marketing um, and that was very much kind of creating lots of different types of content for a lot of different organizations. So kind of learning different tones of voices and um, kind of creating something that's like starting with something very complex and ending up with some simple engaging version that you know you would engage customers with. Um but that wasn't really anything to do with accessibility it wasn't really accessible at all so i moved to the parliamentary digital service uh, as a content designer and that's kind of my introduction to the world of accessibility because as a public service it was absolutely essential that people can access information and they they have equal access to that so i kind of started on a journey of of content design and accessibility and then i moved to scope as a content designer again and i supported on the advice and support content that we have on Scope's website and during that time we had a lot of kind of research and testing with disabled people so I was constantly learning more and more about the different particularly digital barriers that people experienced and that kind of led me to the role that I'm in now which is as accessibility specialist in the partnerships team at scope currently the big hack which is a whole website full of accessibility and inclusive design content articles and guides and pretty much what i do now is i train individuals and businesses to to make their content more accessible both to you know customers or clients as well as employees as well so it's kind of a bit of a a long journey into it but it was um It was really good. (laughs) Amazing. And
0: before I ask you a rather big question, um, I have an even bigger question. So at The wheelchair Activist, obviously our focus is around disabled people and the unsung heroes in the disabled community who are achieving and succeeding in so many different areas of life and different areas of work. But I want to ask you, what does disability mean to you? that's
1: such an interesting and complicated question for me so I might (laughs) I feel like I need to give a little bit of background because it's very much changed please um so I I think I joined scope about four years ago so everything before scope for me what disability meant to me was very negative it was you know I was different to everyone else and I was hiding that. I didn't, you know, people kind of pitied you, you know, you were being told you were brave for kind of just living your life as you do and it's that kind of narrative it made me very Mm. ashamed of of the disability it was something that I felt I had to try and hide try and get people to look past and that's what disability meant to me it was something that I I didn't really want to be associated with which is very (laughs) counterintuitive um And then when I joined Scope, I discovered the social model of disability, which I know you know all about. But for anyone who doesn't, it is a model of thinking uh, developed by disabled people that says that the barriers in society disable people, not an impairment or condition. And those barriers are caused by physical barriers, you know, not having a ramp or digital barriers or really importantly, people's attitudes. And that for me is the biggest change that I've had in what I thought disability was completely got flipped on its head and what it means to me now is very, very different. Um, and I have to say that, you know, I'm proud of my impairment. I've accepted who I am. Um, disability to me is now a social construct. It's, it's something that society mm-hmm. has, the ability to take away Um, and it's something that I'm fighting for that social change that's really important to me that we we make sure that others like me don't feel that disability is uh, something that they own but actually something that is done to them and that can be removed and and taken away. So it's a big question. I don't know if that actually made any sense. (laughs) No, it totally, it absolutely
0: did. And I think that was another huge reason why you and I connected. So I was briefly sort of a half-ish member of your team, which, as you said, is the, the big hack team. When I joined Scope, I was on the consumer affairs policy team. So I worked really closely with your team to look at disabled people's access to food in the pandemic and we looked a lot at sort of the the online shopping experience but in our weekly meetings and sort of getting to know you better I felt really weirdly comforted when I learned that that was your experience with disability um, because it's really similar to my own and I felt like a lot of shame working in the industry that i do and you know being a, a leader if i could call myself that in the disabled community when i myself had a really negative attitude towards it and didn't consider myself to be disabled didn't want any disabled friends or anything like that because i felt like it would weirdly draw more attention to my disability rather than like give me comfort in in a a shared experience. So, I mean, that's one of the the reasons I think you and I connected so well is because we both have very different uh, disabilities, but yeah, a very similar mindset in terms of like how we've changed in our views of disability. And I'm really interested in seeing as you had sort of that attitude towards disability before working at Scope, why is it that you decided to apply to Scope? Was it just sort of right place, right time type of thing? Or, you know, what
1: what was that motivation? That's a really good question. And I mean, I'd already always looked out for jobs at Scope because I, I think I knew deep down it would be a good place to work because even though I had separated myself so much from disability, I realised that it would be somewhere that I would feel comfortable and that I'd potentially be somewhere that I could start to feel more comfortable in my own skin a little bit. Maybe it was kind of, I'd hit that point where I just kind of had enough of feeling that way about myself but not really knowing how to fix it. So when the opportunity came to work at Scope, I was like, well, this is this is perfect, I finally get to work mm-hmm. For a charity, which I wanted to do, I didn't really want to be doing a job that was just for income. I wanted to feel like I was contributing back into the world, and this was somewhere where it would be. I don't. I I shouldn't really say this, but I I kind of I describe it as I found my people,
0: <laughs> yeah. because
1: I I suddenly like I walked in. I remember the first day I was in the Scope office, and I walked into the office and. There were, I don't know, maybe five or six other disabled people in the office that day. And that really isn't that many. But for me, it was five or six more people than I'd ever worked with in close proximity. Mm. And that was that was huge. I just was like, oh, I found found my place. And that was even before I learned about, you know, the social model. I just suddenly didn't feel quite so alone. And I think I think I was just ready for that to find that place, if that Mm. makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I think that that's so interesting that, you know, just seeing, you know, other disabled people around you made you feel that that sense of comfort and belonging. And, you know, I think it's it's so interesting how people like us and I know so many other people with disabilities will go from this you know really i'm not disabled you know and you know i don't want to identify with this community and then really like you said find our people and i i had a really similar experience you know working at muscular dystrophy uk which was when i started like my disability journey per se um so no i think that that's super interesting and yeah, we we both happen to work for Scope. We both both happen to really enjoy it. This is by no means, you know, an ad for working at Scope. Um, but <laughs> but we're we're not being paid by Scope to do this. I promise. But it is a really it's a really good place to work. And I totally understand what you mean about you know that that representation And Scope is. You know, they are aware of that, and you know they take on board the fact that it's important to have that lived experience in the decision making roles. Um so the other question I have that we haven't really touched on is what is content accessibility? What is digital accessibility for people who don't know? Like what's the what's the super basic uh way that you would describe that?
1: Uh so I guess digital accessibility is Being able to access online or, you know, the features on your computer when you have an impairment or condition, potentially with using assistive technology. So assistive technology can be things like a magnifier on your computer that makes everything bigger. It could be a screen reader which is, you know, kind of uh, a bit of kit that reads out everything that it's doing on your computer or the website that you're on. It can be things like uh, having enough color contrast. So, you know, the color on your foreground has enough contrast with the color in your background. That's a quite a big issue for websites. So it can be a range of, of different things, basically making uh, organizations aware that, people access their their services their products in in different ways not the way that they um necessarily expect them to and making sure that those websites are built in a way that is accessible to that assistive technology and in mm. particular so content accessibility is kind of taking that taking away some of that technical side and, and looking at it from access for people that often get overlooked so um you know, people that need plain English uh, to be able to understand the content, to be able to take actions and things like if you're doing a presentation at work, making sure that you're kind of saying everything that's mm-hmm. on your slides so that people who cannot see those slides, be it because of a ab- vision impairment or because they're at the back of the room and they can't see what's on the screen, is getting access to that content. So it, it kind of ranges from a, a different different sides of it. But essentially, mm. it's kind of making sure that if you're accessing things differently, and that could be due to an impairment, um, but there are still, you know, temporary and situational impairments mm. that people experience that can also affect how you access content. So an example I tend to use is trying to look at your phone in bright sunlight, that can be a situational impairment right there. So, mm. yeah, that, I guess that, that kind of covers as basic a uh, explanation as I can do (laughs) yeah
0: and I think it's so helpful to for people to understand that because I know before I worked with you it's you know I've lived with a disability my entire life I've worked in disability since I left university I think it's really easy to think that you know everything about disability and about accessibility but I had absolutely no idea about the barriers that people with different impairments face when trying to do normal things online. And I've learned so much from your training about the way that I write and, you know, not to use too many metaphors or like illustrative language, because that shuts out a whole group of people. And I think in terms of, you know, things like you said about color contrasts and stuff like that it's so important that we're not shutting people out for little design reasons you know it's we want as many people to engage with our content you know whether that's me being you know an a independent blogger podcaster whatever or a major company and yeah I've certainly learned so much through the training that I've done with you and sort of, you know, the um, report that I worked on with your team, which looked at disabled people's access to food in the pandemic and learning how to write that in a way that the people who I'm trying to serve can also read it and get the information from it. So, yeah, I it's such an interesting world. And I will say that since working with you, there are now accessibility barriers, that I cannot unsee. Um, you know, if I'm, if, <laughs> if I'm on a website, and or I'm, you know, scrolling through, and I notice that if you hover your mouse over, um, over a link, and there's no, you know, little line, or there's no box that appears to sort of make it really obvious that that's a clickable link that's going to take you somewhere, I now can't not notice that it's not there and think hey that's a barrier for someone and you know that's not fitting all of the the accessibility guidelines you're meant to be um reaching for so i thank you for making me think of that every time i go on a website or on an app on my
1: phone or something like that um so yeah thank you it feels so good to hear (laughs) it's one of those things it makes me really happy to hear that because it's um I think one of the biggest challenges we have is awareness mm. and actually getting people to think just like you are and then next time you're on a website just being like oh my goodness this thing isn't how it should be and it's the more people that are, become aware of it the more and more likely it is that those barriers won't be in place yeah, absolutely um, and you know it's it's kind of everyone from you know your emails that you're writing it doesn't even need to be customer facing roles it's your documents that you're writing for colleagues it's emails it's it kind of is everywhere so um yeah it's getting that awareness out completely
0: yeah and it was something that was
1: so important to me when
0: I was building this brand the wheelchair activist was to make sure that the colors I was using were not only things that I liked but that also met accessibility standards and actually before I launched the website I had someone do an accessibility audit of it to make sure that it was as accessible as possible because I think you know if I'm going to be interviewing amazing people like you and you know other disabled people who I admire so much I, I need to be practicing what I'm preaching i need to be making sure that i'm not shutting out parts of our amazing community so yeah i if you ever get a chance to attend training done by elizabeth i cannot recommend it enough because it's just taught me so much but i wanted to ask you you know, we talked about your shift in your thinking towards your disability. And I'm really interested to ask you, who were your role models growing
1: up? Were they disabled
0: people? Were they not non-disabled people? Yeah, who who were they?
1: So I, I was thinking about this. I don't, I don't think I really had many role models. There were there wasn't anyone that looked like me out in in the world in public eye let's say Um, Mm. you know so there was no amputees that I could really um, or even widely more widely the disability community that I felt that I could look up to that were role models for me I think that the only amputee that was really around when I was growing up was Jeremy Beadle I think and yeah and most amputees always wore prosthetics which again wasn't Mm -hmm. really uh, representative of myself um prosthetics have always i've always found them more disabling than helpful Mm. um and obviously that is changing now as we're seeing more and more amputees particularly in uh, through paralympics and and such um kind of out there in Mm -hmm. the world as role models so i i didn't really have anyone that was specific i think looking back my mother was a bit of a role model and it's a bit of a cliche but mm. she was very strong very resilient and really independent she never really needed anyone to do anything for her she would just get on with do it she'd find ways of of doing it on her own and she did you know quite a lot of stuff on her own in kind of raising us particularly with the challenges that I had um kind of taking me to all sorts of places with prosthetics mm. um saying that prosthetics didn't help but I had many many attempts to find one that would help <laughs> okay. so I think she she didn't you know she wasn't able to always do a lot of things for me which left me to do those things on my own and find ways around which you know um, meant that I became mm-hmm. more independent and kind of determined um, and that's particularly fed into how I am as an adult Um that kind of determination to just like get on and find a way a way around mm, so yeah even though I, I if you'd asked me as a kid I wouldn't have said that my mother was a role model but looking back I think mm-hmm. she really did set a um, a good example for me when it came to kind of overcoming the barriers that I was I was having so yeah I unfortunately I don't have anyone else mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, yeah fine. yeah I
0: think that's, that sort of speaks volumes in itself, though, because, I mean, I have to admit, you know, when I was drafting that question to ask you, and I'll be asking other guests that question, I sort of was thinking, how would I answer it myself? And I completely agree, you know, I didn't have people who looked like me as role models growing up and i don't know if that's partly because of my reluctance to accept that i was different to my non-disabled peers or if it was also that you know there weren't that many electric wheelchair users who were going out kicking ass and you know whatever it is that they chose to do so i didn't have that either and that's one thing i'm really hoping is Changing and that was a huge motivation behind doing this project. Was you know not necessarily that this podcast is targeted at young people because if it was, I probably shouldn't say things like kicking ass. Um, but you know, it I want I want young people and I want disabled people of all ages to look at people like you and the people that we're going to be having on this podcast and think that's really cool. And I now can find a way to see myself doing that, if if that's what interests you. I think there's such power in representation and being able to see yourself in any given area and achieving in whatever it is you want to do. Because I know for myself, I, I work in disability, I am disabled, but that's not the only thing that we can do. You know, you worked on the you know, digital content access, you know, teams at at Parliament. And, you know, you've done so many amazing things that aren't necessarily just about disability. And I really want people to have those role models going forward, no matter what age they are. Um, And just when you were talking about the sort of ways that we have to, I think, you know, overcome some of the challenges that we met with, I th- often think that disabled people and our families, you know, particularly parents when we're growing up are the best creative problem solvers, because you have to figure out what are those little things that are going to work, work for you and help you overcome whatever challenge it is. And I don't know about you, I'd love to like, get your thoughts on it. But um, when disabled people are applying for a job and you know say that they get an interview and the standard interview question is always can you tell us about a difficult situation or a challenging situation you were in and how you overcame that challenge do you think that using your disability and sort of one of the little like creative problem solving that we have to do all the time is that a good example for disabled people to bring up in that type of situation like is it something you'd feel comfortable doing
1: that's such a good question I I mean I think it is I think that's one of one of the the bits of work that we need to do in in reframing disability in positive light in a positive light so being able to go into an interview and get asked that question and be able to say well yeah this was really challenging I found that I couldn't do x y and z and you know it seemed impossible but then when I creatively came up with the solution and you know and you were able to detail all the different ways it mm. just shows that having a disabled person as part of your team is such a massive massive asset because of the challenges that you're presented with and the amount of problem solving that you have to go through to be able to,
0: mm.
1: you know, kind of make the world around you work for you. Um, and in an ideal world, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have to do that because everything would be designed inclusively. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the way that it is now, we have mad skills when it comes to that. And I think employers yeah. definitely should be you know, wanting those kind of answers from us and, and um, be using that skill set. I don't know whether, whether some organisations are quite there yet, which is really depressing, but um, Mm. I think the more that we are kind of not silent about it and kind of start bringing that forward we can Mm. we can maybe start to change their mindsets and actually put those kind of situations that we've been through into a more positive light if that made sense yeah
0: yeah absolutely it it made me think um of a, a previous role that I was in looking at disabled employment and I was really lucky I got to um speak to this employer who worked at a huge, you know, international charity, and before that, she had worked at Google. And Google at one point did this scheme where they were hiring veterans, you know, from their own forces to to do roles. And they, she, uh, my contact said that she was doing an interview. With the veteran, and, you know, had the standard interview question, can you tell us about a time that you were in a stressful situation and what you did? And his example was literally, well, you know, I was in Afghanistan once, and I was diffusing a bomb. And the recruiter just got totally blown away by that answer because, I mean, first of all, can you think of a more stressful situation? But it just so wasn't (laughs) the... Yeah, it just absolutely wasn't the example that she thought she was going to get. I think people are so quick to use a workplace example. I mean, not that that wasn't his workplace, but, you know, it's not an office and it's not, you know, oh, we had this deadline and we had to get this report out really quick. It was using a super unique lived experience that I think perfectly showed ability to deal with the stressful situation and it just really changed this one recruiter's perspective around using lived experiences in interviews and you know to show that to you know potential employers and I agree with you that sometimes that's going to be met with you know people being really impressed and realizing the value of that and then Sometimes it's going to be a less comfortable example because people don't always know how to respond to disability, let alone, you know, a really specific challenge that we've had to overcome. So I think between all of us, you know, doing everything that we're doing, we're eventually going to get there. So, you know, we'll... We'll see, and we'll just keep using experiences like that um, in those types of situations and not making light of them, not thinking that they're not something truly amazing, because they are. They require a lot of thinking. They require a lot of, you know, adaptability, which is so important. Um, So I wanted to ask you, what is something that you are most Proud of, and that
1: could be personally or professionally. So I would love to say something professionally, but it it's just not true. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I'm probably most proud of, and I'm just I, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but it just I don't know, it just is, is that I I taught myself how to knit and crochet, and like that seems just so uh, mundane, but I. I'd wanted to do it since university, well, knitting, It started with knitting, I wanted to do it since university and um I had a, a, a uni friend who t- was making this little strawberry hat for a baby Aww. and it was like the cutest thing I'd ever seen. And I was watching her knit and it was just, it was, looked impossible, it was like, well, that's definitely a two-handed thing mm. right there, I cannot see how I would do this. And then like a few years later, I was in a a shop, I think it might have been like Tiger and it, it had everything and they had knitting needles and I was like, you know what? Sod it! I'm going <laughs> to buy these and work out how to do it later. Um, and then I just I went online, I watched a couple of videos. There were no videos on one-handed knitting, which made it much diff- uh, much harder. Mm. But with a bit of trial and error, I worked out how I could do it. um So I you know I wound the yarn around my empty hand and I stuck a needle under my armpit and then I started knitting and I, I kind of did it that way and it wasn't ideal it wasn't working super well but it was working well enough and then someone mentioned crocheting which is where you've got a hook instead of a um, knitting needle mm. so and you hook around um and I was like oh that sounds interesting and then her being me I was like well I'm gonna give that a go and I, I taught mm-hmm. myself how to how to do that again I used I've used uh I've got a strap that um, holds my knife so that I can eat with a knife and fork and I repurpose Mm. that to hold the crochet hook. Nice. And yes. Yeah. So like you've got all these little tools and things to find and you know if I if I hadn't had that, you know, there's like velcro straps you can get that could strap it to your hand and things like that. Um and I just I keep the thing with it is I just keep learning more ways to make it easier or, or do it differently so um mm-hmm. when I learned how to crochet it meant that I got better control with holding the yarn and then I discovered I could knit with the yarn in my left hand not wrapped around my amputee arm which meant it actually just flowed a lot better and it was just an easier knitting thing mm-hmm. and then I've just discovered something called Portuguese knitting which makes it again even easier and um <laughs> I, there's circular knitting needles which again I was like well that's impossible that's definitely you need two hands to hold both of them and then I was like I've had enough of this I'm gonna find a way Uh (laughs) so I bought some over Christmas and I'm currently working out a way how to use a circular knitting needles so yeah I guess it's that coming back to that like personal determination which I am very proud of it Mm. it goes through my, all of my work in a professional environment is just my co- like constant determination. I will not give up on stuff. I just keep pushing through it until I can solve a problem. And, um, yeah, and part of that has come through on the, the knitting and the crochet. And, and now I have lots of things that I started with a ball of yarn and now I have, like, usable things in my house from, you know, placemats to cool. blankets to, you know so yeah no No, a very mundane thing
0: no I love that as an example because it it really would appear that you know like you said that's a two-handed thing and I just love that you figured out a way to do it because it was something that interested you and that you wanted to do it so in a very Elizabeth fashion you made it work you've figured out how to make it work and I I love that and I've I have seen some of your projects um that you've done I just think I absolutely love them um so no I I love that as as an example and it really shows you know if there is something that you want to do and you think oh well that's definitely impossible because of this impairment that I have really not a lot is impossible um, so now I, I absolutely love that so flipping the script slightly what is the hardest barrier that you've had to
1: overcome I think with this one and we've touched on it a little bit but I think for this one it's attitudes more than actual physical barrier for me um, my own mm-hmm. attitudes to my own identity um, kind of feeling really isolated and and I spent a lot of years really just hating myself which you know that creates such a barrier because you're you're just Mm -hmm. so disconnected to a a part of who you are because you just don't feel it's good enough and you know um, I I spent a lot of my teen years really scared about what my future was going to hold whether I was how I was going to manage things if I was You know going to be able to get a job would people would employers be able to look past it you know um, kind of how Mm -hmm. people treat you and um, kind of being okay with getting stared at every time you leave the house that's you know quite challenging particularly when you're a young adult trying not really hard not to take that personally and that's that's just quite a big barrier to to overcome I found um just because it's it feels so personal mm. to you and then you know just kind of accepting yourself and and once you do everything became so much easier um and I feel like I mm. <laughs> it's gonna be like I'm unstoppable I'm not I am definitely stoppable but it no just, you are <laughs>
0: take take ownership of that
1: <laughs> it just like Having that moment where I just really felt at peace with myself, really comfortable in my own skin, I realised how many barriers I was putting in place, how I was disabling myself more in public because I was trying to do things more one-handed so that I wasn't doing what would get me stared at you know Mm. if I was like holding four billion things in my right arm and like you know just all those little things that you kind of do and I was doing it subconsciously and I was disabling myself more and you know I just moving away from like worrying about those attitudes of other people and changing my own Mm. attitudes towards disability and myself that was probably the the biggest barrier um and I just feel and and it's pretty much entirely down to the social model of disability I feel really dramatic when I say that it Mm -hmm. changed my life but it it just really did Uh um and I just I don't I really don't want other young adults um that are like myself to get to over 30 years old before they have that that moment and that feeling um because obviously there are a lot of big physical barriers, a lot of other challenges that you face as a disabled person. But I do think that attitudes are just, it, it's the starting point for all those other barriers. So, um, yeah, mm. I think I think overcoming that is, is massive, both from a personal level and then as a <laughs> changing those attitudes from a societal level as well. Yeah,
0: and I think that that's so important you know I think a lot of people can get in their own way if that makes sense you know a lot of people can sort of count themselves out of situations or workplaces or anything like that because of our own perception of ourselves that we're not good enough or that we can't and I think it's even harder when you are disabled because you're not only self-doubting you're you know based on what you know that you can do, or, you know, anything like that. But we're also thinking about what are all of these other people going to think of me? Are they as harsh? Are they going to be as harsh on me as I am on myself? And I, again, that was something that I really resonated with with you with, you know, that feeling of being stared at when you go out and that you know, it's something that I think a lot of, you know, or well, anyone with a, a visible disability can really relate to and sort of trying to, I want to say, I don't want to say overcome your disability, but trying to in my, so I recently wrote a blog post um, about my sort of internalized feelings towards assistive technology and this is something I actually owe a good bit to you in my change of attitudes towards assistive tech because for so long I really resisted the idea of using a dictation software um you know I have a muscle wasting condition I type all day every day for a job and those two things are really damn hard when you put them Together, and I never wanted to use any type of software where I could just speak to the computer and it would type it for me because I thought that it was like letting my disability win, and that i I should be tougher, I should be better you know i I shouldn't give in to it um and it was only after I had started using that assistive technology finally and then had it taken away because my computer broke down that that really hit me. I was making it worse. I was exactly like you said, I was disabling myself. And I thought why am I why am I doing this? It's you know, I'm not beating my disability by adapting my life to make things easier. You know, I'm I'm making my life worse. I'm making it harder. And Yeah, it was something that I have thought a lot about since. And, you know, since meeting you and knowing, you know, the like assistive tech that you use and that we talk about other people using and how it enables them to use basic services or just go on the Internet and enjoy it like anyone else would, that it really occurred to me that it's not a bad thing to use it or so why why am I getting it
1: in my own way yeah it's really challenging because it's it's so ingrained and it's it's sort of come comes back to like I just don't want to do things differently and it's like actually doing it differently just means I can do it better <laughs> you know um mm. but it's a, it's a really difficult mindset and then you know you've got all these other external um external elements and, and different attitudes from others as well that make it hard to kind of block out those voices and those noises and mm. I think one of the challenges I've had is that I've always sort of sat straddling between non-disabled and disabled and in the eyes of myself and the world I've, I've had a uh, co-founder of one of the um first organizations I worked for told me that I wasn't disabled. <laughs> and I was oh. sat there going, Okay, so you've seen me at work doing things like what you consider everyone else um and you've decided that I'm not disabled you know and then that makes you feel like actually yeah do I have a right to say that I'm disabled because I've found ways to do this and mm. you know when you need the extra support you kind of feel like you shouldn't ask for it because yeah actually you know I'm not really being seen as needing that and it just it gets in your head and the things that people don't see from the outside is <laughs> like okay so you don't think I'm disabled but you're not there in the middle of my kitchen when I've just spent uh spread kidney bean juice across all of the <laughs> counters in the floor because it's not opened I've struggled to open it one-handed and it's just gone flying and you know and there's chaos everywhere it's it's just that kind of external attitude, and then yeah you take that in on yourself and you end up adding um, more work because of those Mm. kind of ingrained societal attitudes.
0: I'm so interested in that experience. So did your boss think that you weren't disabled because you were achieving to the same level or, you know, was it, was it a backhanded compliment? Like how did it come across to you at the time?
1: I think he meant it as a, a comp, as a compliment in a way because he thought I was so adapted to the world I wasn't disabled, which you know yeah. I, I guess under the social model we can say that if I've got everything and I'm not experiencing barriers. But I think it was just that assumption that because you can see me doing everything in certain ways, there, it. it It means that I don't ever experience barriers in any other situation, you know, and Mm. that and it's also just telling someone who they are. (laughs) So it's just yeah, um, I I think, yeah, and it was it was kind of that like ableist. Well, you're you're just like me, so I don't see you as disabled. And it's like, okay, but by doing that, we're not then fighting for things to be designed inclusively or all those barriers to continue Mm -hmm. being challenged because you can see on the surface that I'm doing things without barriers but that's in you know that small snippet of time that you spend time with me um if that makes sense it's you know and even so for him to say that, it's like, okay, so, but I also can't adjust my office chair properly because everything is on the right-hand side and not the left, and I'm missing my right hand, mm. you know, so that's a barrier that you've not seen, even though that's in an env- office environment, and I'm sat there, like, hopping up and yeah. down on my chair, trying to get it, get it into a good position. So, yeah, I
0: think that's really difficult because I think a lot of disabled people, and I'm certainly guilty of this in the workplace where we don't want to be seen to be a burden or be an extra thing for your manager or your boss to worry about that you just sort of muddle along and you figure out how to make things work and by work I mean like barely working and not where you're feeling like you're thriving you're achieving you're succeeding in the way that you know that you could be, you just sort of make do, I think is perhaps the better way of saying it. And if people see that, and they don't realize that, you know, yeah, I was able to crank out that whole report in a day, but now my arm is so tired that I don't know if I can feed myself dinner. You know, they they don't see that side of our, our lives. And it's certainly something that I'm guilty of um and yeah I think to to deny a part of
1: your identity is
0: pretty pretty not okay in in my perspective but again so
1: very yeah it's very bold it was just and the thing is actually thinking back so this I think it was like a few months later my one-handed keyboard actually broke and I couldn't use it and I and it took forever to get a replacement it took months so about two months working I had to type on a full-size keyboard and I had repetitive strain injury for that entire time and it was mm. so painful and I had so much work I was still having to like work late and everything and um I as you say like you just you just push you you get by and you push through but it's damaging to you mm. to you know I spent a lot of time just taking painkillers because I was you know and To sort of think back to like, well, you saw me non-disabled because I had a working keyboard. But as soon as that keyboard was broken, I became, you know, very, very disabled. And, uh, you know, uh, at the cost of, of my quality of life to continue working so that you continued as an organization not to see me as disabled. Um, and you know not as valuable as other employees because I was working slower and struggling so I I kind of didn't but yeah
0: and I think that that's really something as well that I really want others to take away from this episode and from experiences like yours and mine that don't suffer in silence you know don't Yeah, I always say to um, people, you know, learn from my mistakes because it was a mistake for me to, like exactly what you said, like impact the quality of my life because I want to be seen as equal to my non-disabled peers who don't have all of the challenges and all the barriers that I do. And it's something that I'm definitely getting better at. But I think it's also important for people to know that. Even though you know you and I are coming from a, a more experienced place now, and we are really lucky that we work for an employer that is very disability aware, obviously, and really understanding if we have good days where we can get a lot done, but then we have bad days where we're in a lot of pain or our assistive tech breaks, and it's going to impact our workloads. then you know we feel safe to be able to say that and get the help that we need and a lot of people aren't in that situation but i really want people to listen to this and think actually that sort of resonates with me to with the experience that i'm in now and maybe i should spend some time reflecting on that and think is there any software any physical equipment that could allow me to work easier and allow me to get more enjoyment out of my life and out of my job and maybe I should consider that and yeah I that's something I really hope that people take away from our experiences and it leads me on I think you know you've touched on this a bit but I'd love to know what advice would you give young Elizabeth or would you give young people like you with the same impairment that you do
1: I think um I think for my younger self I would tell myself that it does get better even when it's really tough it always gets better things do improve that was something I really struggled with I just always thought it was going to be difficult <laughs> and it is difficult and there are hard times um I you know I have chronic migraines now and I go through very much a sort of high and low with managing that pain and you know at my lowest I have to keep reminding myself it's you know this isn't forever it will get better because it doesn't always feel that way um and I think holding on to that hope and knowledge that it will improve is is really important especially when you're a young person because it can feel very negative and very difficult um I think as well I would say that being different is not a negative um there is so much you can offer by being different there's so many different skills and different mindsets and points of view that are so valued and that really needed in in the world and in society that benefit society we have a place in this world and we we shouldn't be quiet and we shouldn't kind of be afraid to stand up and push back when things aren't right Um, and that our voices do Mm. really matter our opinions and viewpoints matter and that's something that I I've only really in in the last few years being at scope feel that I have the confidence to be able to say that I never really felt that I had a voice in society Mm. and I think we have to fight to do better and I think our young my younger self I wish I could have told myself to do that and I could have been fighting all of these years as opposed to trying to fit myself into a box that you know wasn't wasn't (laughs) going to fit so yeah I guess I guess that that would be be my advice
0: (laughs) I think that's it's a really interesting one because I think so many young people disabled or not feel that they have to fit like you said into that box you know whether it's unachievable beauty standards or toxic masculinity or you know all of those horrible pressures that come from society but i think when you're disabled and you know i i know for for me you know i am you know, I've always been a full-time electric wheelchair user, and I felt this real resentful feeling kind of towards myself because there were things that I wanted for myself for my life that were just never going to happen because you know I I am disabled, and now, like you, you know, mentioned earlier, you can get to a point where you can accept that and be proud of the differences and the experiences and all of that, that you do bring to the table and you know it's it's difficult for for young people to get to that place of acceptance and I as well just really hope that people listen to this they see people like you and me and all of the other people that we're going to be having on This podcast and realize that they are achievable like you said things will get better you're not going to be in you know sixth form or high school forever where you feel that you have to you know be the popular kid or you know whatever whatever it is that you feel that you need to be the only thing that you actually need to be is yourself and you need to feel comfortable in yourself and then you know, the whole point of the wheelchair activist is whichever way you feel comfortable expressing that, and like you said, standing up for yourself is valuable. You don't need to go to a big protest and feel that that's the only way that you can fight for your rights. You can blog, you can go on social media, you know, I don't honestly care how you do it. I just care that you try and that you care enough to try and yeah I just can't thank you enough for coming on this podcast and sharing the amazing experiences that you've shared with me and with the audience that you know this is the first episode so there will be more and more people who will come and find this and listen to your story and we'll learn from it and yeah, just thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm really, really excited to, to see all the following podcasts. I say see, listen to all the following podcasts <laughs> um, and all the, the wonderful people that you're going to be ta- chatting to and hearing all the different perspectives. Obviously, you know, mine is just one. It's uh, mm. very, very different for lots of different people. Um but yeah thank you so much for for inviting me on here
0: now my pleasure and I yeah I'm just so excited for all the other people that I'm going to be having conversations with and just thank you every single person for listening to this episode and I can't wait to see you in the next one thank you so much everyone for listening to this episode of The Wheelchair Activist with Elizabeth Board. I've learned so much from her and I know that lots of you will be learning things from her and from hopefully myself as well. I'm so excited to continue this podcast journey with you all to show you some amazing disabled people and everything that this amazing community does and achieves every single day. So make sure that you subscribe You can follow The Wheelchair Activist across all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff, and I will see you in the next episode. Have a great day.